we in this Christmas season, this Advent season, uh, just looking back into our fall, we have been taking a look through the book of Hebrews. And Hebrews was this reminder that we are, this was a group of people that was under pressure in the world that they lived in. They were under pressure from a dominant culture, not to call Jesus Lord, but to call Caesar Lord. And they were in another sort of pressure from the, the subculture, the Jewish subculture that they had come from, to lean not on Jesus, but on the intermediaries from the past, people like Moses and Torah and angels and high priests and sacrifices, and that Jesus is being put forth as some, something that, to help people that are under pressure. And as I was thinking about what this Advent season might be like and what we should be looking at, is just this idea that not only were the people in the first century that the Bible was written to under pressure, but we also are people that are under pressure in our society. There is a, and you guys are like, I don't know what you're talking about. No, you know what I'm talking about. Because we, we live in a world in which there are pressures, pressures to conform, pressures, to, uh, economic pressures. Uh, there are pressures, political pressures. Even as a pastor, there are pressures on me to say and do certain things. There's pressures on you to look and to sound a certain way. And what we want to do is we just want to ask the question, what, what does it mean for us as people in our world that are under pressure from a dominant culture, even from a dominant subculture around us, but what, how can we experience this idea that God is with us in the midst of a pressure, a cultural moment that is filled with pressure. And so this Advent season, what we wanted to do was take a look at some familiar Christmas passages. There are only so many, as I mentioned last, last week. And as a pastor, what you realize quickly is like you come to the end of all those. And so just asking the question, what does God want to impress on our hearts and on our souls in this Advent season? And so we're looking at these familiar Christmas, pa Christmas passages and we want to note that these are people also under pressure. We looked last week at Mary. She was under pressure. And this week, we are going to be looking at Joseph and the pressure and pressures that he is under as a righteous man in a culture that is being, and being asked to do something for God and with God that is going to put him under even more pressure. So last week, we looked at Mary. We said, she, she was received the message from the angel, greetings, the Lord is with you. And today we're going to find out that the message to Joseph is that God is with us. If you've got your Bible, let's open up to Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. I think it's so interesting how in telling the story of the birth of Jesus, Luke tells the story of the birth of Jesus. The thread that holds that story together is Mary, and he tells the birth story from the perspective of Mary. So when we want to learn about Mary, we want to look at the perspective of Mary, we look at the Gospel of Luke. Matthew is going to do it differently. The through line for the birth of Jesus, in this case, is not going to be Mary, it's going to be Joseph. And Joseph is the one that Matthew is going to tell the birth story through. And so what we want to do today is we just want to look at the story, make some observations about the story, and then ask the question, if Joseph is a man under pressure, how does the message, the angel that comes to visit him in his dream, how is it that the angel is going to urge him to behave and to move forward with this task that God is putting before him? And I think there are some things for us as a community that we get to see this morning. So let's take a look at some of this. You guys with me this morning? Good. I hope you have warm hands. My hands got cold this morning, but I'm going to warm up really quick. You guys know that that's going to happen. Um, so 118. As Rob, the voice of God, read, 
says, now that I can't even do a Rob Martin impression. I mean, I wish I could. So I, it was so great. And when warm, as the band was warming up this morning, like Rob got up to do the stage check and the sound check, and he started talking, and all, and all the Biola players that were up, by the way, welcome for Christmas season here, but they were all up here like, oh my gosh, can you, like, they were, they were impressed with the voice. It's great. All right, I'm going to do my best. Okay, 118. Now, the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And so, a couple of things just as we bridge the gap between our world and the first century world, uh, the Jewish world of the first century, the first word that might be weird for us is just this word betrothal. We have the word engagement, and engagement is this process from which you, you, know, you pop the question to you get married, that's, that's engagement period. They would have called it betrothal, and betrothal was something of a legal agreement between families in the Jewish first century. We actually know quite a bit about betrothal by reading um, Jewish literature from the first century, which is called the Mishnah. And uh, betrothal was a, was a pretty serious legal agreement, uh, a little more, little more serious, a little more weighty than maybe our Western understanding of engagement, okay? Um, it, it was a legal agreement between a man and not the woman, but the family of the woman. It was a legal agreement, and it would, they, would have, they would have come to some kind of agreement that um, the man would work with the father to convince him of his own worth, and that um, he would receive the da- his, his daughter and the dowry into his own family. So this man, Joseph, had been working with the family of Mary to work out this union, and they had come to this legal agreement about uh, about what that was going to look like and what were the stipulations that were all part of that. Mary was a young maiden. She was a virgin. And Joseph, we don't know a lot about him. We'll talk a little bit more as we go. But Mary, let's talk about Mary. Mary was a woman of betrothal age. And we, we, we talked about last week that betrothal age, according to Mishnah, is 12 and a half years old. And then marriage age is 13 and a half. So, so again, some of you ladies out there are like, I'm glad we've moved, we've moved those ages back a little bit. Some of your parents are like, I'm glad we've moved those ages back a little bit. Um, but once that agreement had been reached, there was typically a time of preparation, six months to a year, where the man would prepare a house, typically build a, onto his father's house, a joint, an adjoining structure, and the woman would gather the dowry. And this whole process took about a year, and um, the husband would come for the wife, and there would be a wedding ceremony, and then the wedding would be, and the ceremony would be consummated. She would be 13, 14 years old, something like that. And one of the interesting things, in, if you just, no extra charge for this one, in John 14, in the upper room discourse, when Jesus is talking about, um, in my Father's house, there are many rooms, and I go to prepare a place for you, that's betrothal language. That the bride of Christ, Jesus is talking to his disciples, He's talking about, hey, look, I am making it, I'm engaging, I'm going to betroth you to me, and I'm going to go and I'm going to make the preparations, and technically speaking, we as a church are in a season of betrothal. So, so a couple of just, this, this language, this is the idea that we are in this, we're in this binding covenant agreement with God, and he is, he's gone and he's making a place, and we're going to come to him. So beautiful, beautiful things. Now, okay, so back down into the, into the text. It says, um, it says this, that before they came together, 
Um, be, uh, Jesus Christ took place when his mother Mary had been betrothed, betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was bound, found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And here's the issue. Um, before they came together, she was found to be with child. Matthew adds, for clarity, from the Holy Spirit. This child is from the Holy Spirit. However, as you might be very well aware, if you see a pregnant woman, you don't think, oh, she was made to have child with by the Holy Spirit. Like, that's not the typical way it happens. And so other people would not have thought this. And there were all sorts of explanations that might have made sense in the first century to everyone else around, as well as to Joseph. And these are the explanations. The first is that in this betrothal period that she had been unfaithful to him. But more likely, more likely, and this happened in the ancient world quite a bit, is that she had been taken advantage of by some other man. Or probably even more likely, because there was an invading Roman force in the nation of Israel at the time, the Romans were there, very likely that she had been raped by a Roman soldier. And now you're like, look, everybody, the Bible is a book for adults. I, and I, I, there's a lot of cool things about the Christmas story, but this is an unplanned pregnancy in a time of war and occupation. And Mary shows up pregnant, having been betrothed to a man. It's either that Joseph did it or another man did it. And more than likely than not, because Joseph is a righteous man, it's not his. He knows that there would have been these thoughts about, how, did this, how was this young woman impregnated? And in the Mishnah, like we talked about this Jewish literature from the first century, there were many provisions if during a period of preparation and betrothment, if the deal was broken. And in this case, the deal had been broken. Somehow, the deal had been broken. That this agreement between Joseph and the family of Mary that Mary was going to come as a virgin, as a young maiden, not betrothed to any other man. This deal had been broken. And there were means for ending the agreement. And what you would need is because this was a legally binding betrothment, there would need to be a legally binding ending to whatever this agreement was. A divorce, essentially. And that divorce, that divorce in the Mishnah, there's lots of different ways. It could be public with many witnesses, or you could do it privately, but there needed to be a minimum of two witnesses. A minimum of two witnesses. So you could do it publicly. You could do it publicly, and usually the public one would be a way to cast blame onto somebody, but to, but to kind of leave yourself unscathed. Joseph opts for, what does he opt for? He opts for the quiet one with a minimum of two witnesses. So it could be public with many witnesses or it could be discreet, but it would need those two witnesses. Now the penalty for the girl might simply be that the betrothal is ended and then she's later betrothed to another man because she's of betrothal age. Or it could be as severe as death. As stoning. We don't have a lot of records of this actually being carried out, but according to Deuteronomy and the law, this was, that was one of the things that might have happened. It all depended on what the wronged party, in this case the man, 
It's, it's, it's hard to even say the wronged party. Like you think about this whole arrangement and how difficult this would have been as, as, a, as a practice. But the, really, it's the man, the, the, the fiancé and the family of the, of the girl, they would decide the fate of the girl. Now, we don't hear anything about Mary's family or Mary's father. But we do hear something about Joseph. 119. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. All right, let's talk Joseph for a second. We don't have a lot of information about Joseph. There are some traditions about Joseph. Um, Joseph would have at least been older than Mary, okay? If she's 13, 14, he's, he's established as a tradesman. It says later on that he's known as the builder or the carpenter. So he's established as a tradesman, um, and he's a little older than Mary. We don't know exactly how old, how much older. Um, usually in Roman Catholic traditions, Joseph is much older than Mary um, because all the, the siblings of Jesus are from another marriage, uh, Joseph's previous marriage, that Joseph was, um, is, is depicted as a widower in Roman Catholic traditions, and he comes at this being a second marriage, and then the only child born in that marriage is Jesus. Um, so there, there's, a lot, there's, uh, there's some traditions about Joseph. Um, oftentimes in classical art, Joseph is depicted as an older man. Um, and usually that's, a, again, no extra charge, but usually because that's the idea of um, if Mary is to remain a perpetual virgin, then she can only have one child. It's not like Jesus is the oldest of many children. It's that jo- all these other children come from another marriage, and then Jesus is the only child from that marriage. Now, I don't have really a dog in the fight on this one. Um, I, it, could, it could have been that Joseph was older and a widower, and this was a second marriage, but I don't have any like theological thing that I need the perpetual virginity of Mary to be a thing. So to me, I always, I always picture Joseph as, uh, as a older than Mary, but a young man, uh, we, we just don't know. Both of these are plausible. I, have, uh, I, I tend to think of Joseph as a young man, a builder, a carpenter, um, someone who is of marriage age, usually probably the, the same age as Mary or something to that, to that effect. All right. We still have greeting going on up here. That's fine. Okay. Uh, so it's, it also says that Joseph was a just man. Maybe you in your translation, it says that um, Joseph was a righteous man. And probably what that's referring to in first century Judaism, if you were someone who kept the law, you kept Torah, you, you ate kosher, you, you took the Sabbath, you obeyed the Sabbath, you were, if you were a male, you were circumcised when you were, when you were eight days old, uh, if you were that person, you would have been known as a tzaddik, a righteous man, a tzaddik. And what this is saying is that Joseph is a tzaddik. He obeys Torah, he obeys, he, t- he obeys Sabbath regulation. He gives his sacrifices and his tithes. He's a righteous man. He's Torah observant. He's a good guy. And he's not only a good guy in character, but he's a good guy as it relates to Judaism. Like, he keeps Torah. He's a good, he's a good upstanding Jewish boy, right? He's a good, he's a good Jewish boy, okay? The, uh, I'm trying to do my impression of a Jewish mom and dad. Anyway, you guys are along for the ride. I appreciate that. All right, so Joseph was a Torah-observant, upstanding man, ready to be married. And when he hears the situation that Mary is pregnant, and he knows that it's not his, he assumes one of the options that we had just talked about. 
that either she had been unfaithful or she has been taken advantage of, neither of which is good. And his description, his description as a tzaddik was now in question, depending on what he did next. She would not be, she was not to be the wife of a righteous man. No righteous man would do that. So we see here Joseph is under pressure, and there's some competing, there's some competing sensibilities. And oftentimes we see this in the Gospels, that there are competing sensibilities. Something has happened to Mary, and it's not, the plans have been, the plans have been disrupted. But she shouldn't be publicly shamed. So he would discreetly find the quietest two witnesses, like, depending on the witnesses, like, you guys know, like, if you want to keep something discreet, you find two people that you know it's not going to go past them, right? And you know who those people are. You also know that there are people you don't want to tell. And you might know who those people are, people who are going to blab it out, right? He decides to find the quietest two witnesses and go through the divorce annulment process. So Joseph is put in a tough spot, probably not as tough as Mary. Let's give Mary, like, we're telling the story from Joseph's perspective, even though we know Mary since we heard it last week. But certainly he's under pressure with these competing sensibilities. But Joseph is going to receive some guidance. And that guidance is going to come in the, in the uh, form of a dream and an angel in his dream. I think one of the interesting things, just little side note here. When God wants to guide Joseph in the birth story of Jesus, he does it entirely through dreams. I have weird, weird dreams. I don't know if about you guys. Like I, I, the weirdest dreams I have are like when, when you're sick or taking medication and you're, or jet lag. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Like vivid, crazy dreams, right? Now, I don't know how God does it. I don't feel like I've ever really... There's one time that I feel like I've been actually spiritually guided by a dream. I'll tell that story later. Not later in this, but you can talk to me later. Um, But I don't think it's a characteristic way that God guides me. God God usually guides me by either um, Scripture or like impressing something on me from multiple angles. Like oftentimes I know that God's doing something when like I'll hear something from one angle and then another person that are, is totally unrelated or maybe a third person it kind of tr- God like triangulates on me and like you realize oh God's doing something here like there's but there's characteristic ways that God deals with us or guides us I don't know what yours is maybe it's that you have godly friends and they work together maybe it's that in your prayer time, that God, like there's a weightiness of God's words that you feel when they're on you. Again, I think it's something to reflect on. But for Joseph, he's guided entirely by dreams in this. He's guided by an angelic visit in a dream. And then when the Magi come and they leave, he's guided in a dream to take the baby and Mary to Egypt. And then later he finds out and they come back. So it's all in dream. It's kind of interesting. Like he's not the only Joseph that knows what to do with dreams in the Bible, is he? But he he certainly is. That's one of the interesting ways that he is guided in this way. But I think what's interesting is the content of this dream, the content of this visitation. And I think for us, what I want to do, there's something about what the angel says to Joseph that I think we as people under pressure, maybe in your own life with competing sensibilities in our world, 
Do I do this? Do I adopt this? What do I do with this person? I love this person, but I don't like what they're doing. Like, what do I do with the competing sensibilities in my life? So let's look at what the angel says to him. 120. As he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And as he considered, I think what's the first thing about this is as, he, as he's considering how to go about divorcing Mary, he goes to sleep and the angel's like, okay, this is an opportune time. And I think this, one, of my, one of my favorite holiday movies, um, or that has left an impression on me, is um, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. Anybody? And one of my favorite scenes in that movie is um, Steve Martin and, um, and John Candy are in a car. All their characters are in a car. And they hit some black ice, and they do a, like a 360 spin, and they get disoriented. And once they stop the spin, they just keep driving. You guys remember this scene? But it turns out that they're going the wrong way on the highway. So a car comes up on the other side of the highway next to them, and they roll down their windows. I realize that today roll, this is not the universal sign for rolling down windows. Like when you do this to your kids, they're like, what are you doing? Roll down your window. There's no cars with cranks in them anymore. Okay, sorry. Um, but they roll down their windows. You guys, this is just stream of consciousness. So they roll down their window, and they yell at, they yell at Steve Martin and John Kenny, and they're like, and they say, you're going the wrong way. And then John Candy turns to Steve Martin and he says, how do they know where we're going? Okay, so anyway, uh, so the angel has come down to essentially say, Joseph, you're going the wrong way. You're going the wrong way. And Joseph is like, hey, I'm thinking about this. I think I've got a good plan. I'm a righteous man. We're going to do this quietly. I'm not going to shame her. I'm going to keep my reputation intact. I'm going to try to keep her reputation intact. That's going to be a little hard, but like she's going to be on her own, but that's okay. She'll make it. We're going to do it quietly. There's a few things that the angel says that deserve comment. They're spoken to a man who's experiencing pressure, pressure to go one way when he needs to go to another. All right, so if you're in the same boat as Joseph, I just want you to hear this because listen to what the angel says to him. The first thing that the angel does is the angel reminds him who he is. He says, Joseph, son of David. Now, when you're addressed as someone's son, it implies something about you. I am Craig, son of Doug. And that means my dad, Doug, is a careful man. We used to always get, um, uh, his, his Christmas gifts would always be very practical, like um, a Thomas guide. Those, you're like, some of you were like, yeah, thank you, a Thomas guide and a fire extinguisher. Right? That, that, that's what my dad, son of Doug, means you're cautious. But my dad's also super handy. Like, if an angel showed up and said, Craig, son of Doug... I would be like, does that mean that he wants me to lean into my handiness or to my cautiousness, right? 
Or my dad feels things super deeply, which I love. Like, does he want me to lean into that? Like, there's something about being called that. I have a grandfather um, named Emil. He was a baker for Oral Wheat Bakery. But if he was, he was also an immigrant. So if I was addressed, Craig, son of Emil, then I, you know, do I lean into, do I bake some sourdough? Like, do I appreciate a good rye? Like, wh- what, what should I do? Or do, do I need to be reminded that I'm an immigrant? Right? Or like my grandpa Ray. Like, he was a soldier in World War II. But he was a great storyteller. He also smoked a ton. Like, Craig, son of Ray, what does that mean? Right? I'm sorry, I'm just, that's what I grew up with. Like, great stories and the smell of cigarette smoke. It was, like, that's what, that was my childhood, and it was wonderful. I think as we think about this, you know, if an angel were to show up and address me as a son of one of these people, the angel would be affirming me in regard to something about that character that I need to lean into. Now, Joseph, no doubt, had other fathers and grandfathers and great-grandfathers and great-great-grandfathers, but when the angel shows up, what does he say? Joseph, son of David. Like, his, his reputation in the community is not as a son of David. His reputation in the community, later on in, in, in the, at the end of Math, or in Matthew 15, when Jesus goes to Nazareth and he starts talking and everybody's amazed at what Jesus says, they're like, isn't this the son of the builder, the carpenter? Like, Joseph was known as the carpenter or the builder. Like, that's what he was known as, but the angel shows up and he's not like, Joseph the carpenter. It's like Bob the builder, right? Like, he doesn't, the angel doesn't show up and say, Joseph the builder. He says, Joseph, son of David. Like, here's the deal, Joseph. I know you're thinking about divorcing this young girl. I need you to know, I need you to start by knowing who you are because I need that guy. I need that guy. God needs the son of David. We need you to be the stepfather. We need you to be legally the stepfather. Now, there's lineage to David through Mary in kind of a roundabout way, but through the father, the stepfather, we need the son of David, and we need you to step in as the son of David. We need you to understand who you are. I know you're a man under pressure, but the way you're going to withstand whatever pressure you're feeling, you got to know who you are. You may have forgotten who you are, and you're a great builder, a great carpenter. You are a son of David, a descendant of a great king. But what I need you to be is I need you to be the stepfather of the greatest king. I need you to be a son of David. You are Joseph, son of David. And I think for us, look, as we enter into this season, whatever pressures you've got on you, whatever pressures we've got on us, I think the first thing we got to do and what we have to understand is we just need to know who we are. And maybe you've got a relative, someone that you look at, you look up to, and maybe it's someone that's back far in your family tree, or maybe it's somebody close. But you just need, you need to understand, like, you are a son or a daughter of somebody, And if the angel came and needed you to do something difficult, how would the angel address you? 
And maybe you're in a situation where, look, you got a family tree that you do not like. Too much, you know, too many cigarettes and storytelling, right, or whatever, I don't know, okay, which can be redeemed. That's the beautiful thing about everything like that. But maybe you just need to know, man, you've been called before the foundations of the world to be adopted as a child of God. You got to know that. If an angel were to show up, the angel would say, what, who are you? I need you to do something hard. How would the angel address you? Child of God, seen and known before the foundations of the world, made for God's good pleasure, a pillar in the community. How would the angel address you? Joseph, son of David, I need you to embrace who you are in this moment. Second thing he says, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. You're dismissing of this betrothal. Though you are called and known as a righteous man, this is, and this is going to hit home, Okay? The angel says, what you're doing is not righteous, it's the product of fear. And I got to tell you, there is nothing more dangerous than someone who thinks they're righteous but is really just afraid. We have too many people who are willing to be right but not compassionate because they're afraid of what it'll mean for them. In a religious world, there's nothing more dangerous than someone who thinks they're right, but will not have love. And the angel gently tells the righteous man, don't be afraid. You might think you're righteous in this, but I want you to know you're just afraid. I need to remind you of your identity and I need to remind you not to be afraid. And look, I, this, this one hits home because I come from an evangelical tradition that really likes being right. I, I really like being right. I've spent so much of my adult life learning the right answers to the questions being aware of all the options, knowing Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic, doing a PhD, knowing the right answers, knowing things that no one else knows. I could go on about Jewish and Greco-Roman inheritance law. There are probably only 20 people in the world that know as much about that as I do, to be quite honest. I did a PhD on it, wrote a dissertation on it. I love being right. I love it. You guys were like, we know. <laughs> Being right without love is empty religion. Being right without compassion 
It's like Jesus standing outside the church while we're singing songs and he's saying, hey, do you mind if I come in? And we're like, Jesus, we're singing all your songs. And he's like, yeah, but do you mind if I come in? We're singing all the right songs and we believe all the right stuff, but Jesus is like, yeah, but do you mind if I come in? Joseph needs to be reminded what righteousness looks like. It includes compassion. It includes risk. I know you're righteous, Joseph, but I need you not to be afraid. So you've got to be reminded of who you are. And I think, look, we, we, as we face these things in our own lives and the, and the pressure and what our reputations might look like if we do something, we need to understand that Jesus has come, that the way of Jesus is a way of love and it's a way of compassion. It's also a way of living according to God's good design and God's good pleasure, but it's also the way of compassion. It's the way of love. And the angel says to Joseph, yes, be righteous, but also I need you to do something. And it's going to be at great risk and great cost to you. Ultimately, what the angel says is that God is at work. Look at this string. Look at 120. For that which is conceived in her, Mary, is from the Holy Spirit. You may not believe it, and other people may not believe it, but Mary has not been unfaithful, nor been raped or taken advantage of. The child in Mary is the result of the creative power of God. You remember back to Genesis 1-2, the Spirit of God hovers over the waters. Well, that same Spirit of God has done a creative work in Mary. In 1-1-17, in Matthew, just one way to think about this, it's the, the, the genealogy, so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so. In this verse, it says that the Holy Spirit begat in Mary. The genealogy continues. This child is special. Look at 121. She will bear a son. You will call him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus or Yeshua is the name Joshua. Joshua means Yahweh saves. Jesus is the Romanized name of Yeshua. The Lord saves. You will call his name the Lord saves saves, and he will save his people from their sins. What's, I think what's cool here is actually in Greek, and here, here's my, I love to be right, okay, in Greek it actually says that it's emphatic about he. He will save his people from their sins. He himself will save his people from their sins. And then I, I love this, whether this is from the narrator or from the angel, it's, it's ambiguous. I do like to think that the angel does this because it's a great work of interpretation. Look at 122. It says, um, all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord spoke by the prophet. And um, that, it isn't, sorry, just no extra charge for this. this is, it's a weird translation. I don't know why the ESV translates it this way. The implication is that this is part of the vision that, a, that the angelic uh, message that is being given. So actually what it probably should be translated as is, all this, took, all this took place, or all this has taken place, to fulfill what the Lord spoke by the prophet. So the angel is interpreting something that Isaiah said. The angel says, oh yeah, this is to fulfill this. 
And he says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Joseph, you've got to know who you are. You're a son of David. And I know you're righteous, but I don't want you to be afraid because I want you to know that God is at work here. You're going to have a son. You're going to name him Jesus, but other people will call him God with us. And I suppose as we, as we enter into this, this Advent season, as we think about the pressures that are on us, and again, we talked about these last week, we live in a, a world that is an uh, attention economy. So many people vying for your attention just to put something in your face on a screen. If you scroll through Instagram or TikTok or Facebook or whatever, it's all this idea of like the, 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 the effort to put something in front of your face. It's an attention economy. And there's people jumping around trying to do that. And there's pressures to that. And advertisers or people will play off your pressure, off the pressures off of your fears. The, the fear, FOMO is a big one, right? Fear of missing out. If I don't keep scrolling, I will miss out on something really cool. The next dopamine hit or whatever it is. And I want to remind us that as we seek to follow Jesus in this season, that God wanted to make it very clear that God is with us, that he's with us and he's gone to great lengths. In order for us to be in this season, to be under pressure, that he wants us to know who we are, and we talked about this, that if, if you're in a hard spot, how would God address you? Know who you are. And also to know what your fears are. And I, I just want just to run through these things because I think that as we think about our own lives and the season, that we have lots of things that are on our mind, a lot of things, uh, maybe fears or pressures. But I want you to hear this. I, hear, I want you to hear who you are. If you put your faith in Jesus, these things are true about you. One, because of the doctrine of justification, you are completely forgiven not just for the past stuff, completely forgiven, and found in the righteousness of Jesus, pleasing to God based on the righteousness of Jesus. You are completely forgiven and fully pleasing to God based on the righteousness of Jesus. You've been justified by faith and have peace with God. You do not need to fear failure. There is no failure that will disqualify you from the love of God. You are completely forgiven and fully pleasing to God based on the righteousness of Jesus. Because of the doctrine of reconciliation, it tells us you are totally accepted by God. While you were an enemy of God, that is when he sent his son to reconcile you to him. Not while you were a good person, not while you were looking for him. Like Romans 5 is like, for a good man, someone would dare to die. But God does demonstrate his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies, he has reconciled us. Because of reconciliation, you are totally accepted you no longer have to fear rejection. Because of the atonement and propitiation, it means that you are deeply loved by God, that you are no longer an object of wrath 
for God. God is not out to punish you. Therefore, there, now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That has been satisfied by the sacrifice of Jesus. You no longer have to fear punishment. You no longer have to see God as the highway patrolman behind the billboard ready to gun you down with the radar gun. You have been, you have been made to be loved Not that wrath would be poured out on you, but that love would be poured out on you. That compassion would be poured out on you. That is who you are. You no longer have to fear punishment or punish other people. And finally, there's a little doctrine. It's called regeneration. And it means that you have been made brand new and complete in Christ. Brand new and complete in Christ. His mercies are new every morning. Your shame has been removed, and in its place is light and life. There is nothing you have done and nothing that has been done to you that can disqualify you or separate you from the love of God. That is who you are. Son of David, I need you to step into this moment. I don't need you to be afraid of what other people will think of you. What I need is someone who is going to embody this kind of love and compassion that this child is going to show to an entire world. Son of David, I need you to step into this and not be afraid. He will save his people from their sins. You will call him Jesus. They will call him God with us. And we come today to sing songs and to celebrate that God is with us and to lean into in whatever place we're in, whatever pressures we're facing, and I know we're all facing them, but to get a fresh sense of who we are, who I am, who you are, so that you can, in that identity, step out into a world and not be afraid. God is at work. Let's pray. I'm going to invite the